Welcome back to Post Traumatic Thriving. I am Dr. Randall Bell, a.k.a. Randy or that guy. I'm here with Tanya Brown. <laughs> How are you, Tanya? Hey, Randy. I'm good. Nice Have, to see you. Likewise. And welcome back to Jerry Jewell. Thank you. This it's, has been great. Thank you. It's really been an honor talking to you. If you've missed the first two episodes, listen to them. It's just mind-bending. Jerry is the author of this book. I'm walking as straight as I can. And most of you will know Jerry from ABC's Facts of Life, uh, HBO Deadwood. She's been on anything and everything. Mm -hmm. And we're now in the Thrive segment, right. which is my favorite segment. Yes. Let's face, this, is yes. the key, this is what we've been working for. Exactly. It's like summoning Mount Everest. You're, not, <laughs> you're finally up at the top here. And a brief recap. We talked about Jerry's uh, Jerry being born with cerebral palsy. That's very, very challenging in and of itself. Being in kind of a tough love family, if you will. Mm -hmm. Some really, uh, I mean, frankly, I'm just sitting here. Uh, ugly stories of abuse, uh, which is just so disturbing, ridiculously disturbing. And Jerry, I don't know how you feel about this, but the people that are abusers have been through trauma it, almost yeah. inevitably. Mm -hmm. Not that that excuses what the, they've done because it doesn't, but that's the cycle we're trying to break right. with this whole podcast is to bring this ugly conversation and the, and the great conversation to the table and in the hopes that it kind of you know, tips the scales more uh, up on the positive, down on the negative exactly. by exactly. talking about it. And we're, we are talking about some heavy, really heavy, heavy stuff. stuff. Yeah. So check that out on episodes one and two. Mm -hmm. But I want to ask you, we're, you know, everybody knows you from Facts of Life. But before that, there was Cheech and Chong <laughs> and then something about Burt Reynolds. Let's start with Cheech and Chong. Yeah, I I got a notice to audition for a Chichin Chong film, mm -hmm. Nice Dreams, and they never. I never saw a script. There was no script. <laughs> there was no script. <laughs> that says a lot. Surprise! <laughs> the script is three like, words: yeah. smoke a bong. <laughs> There's your script. <laughs> and and I was so sheltered. I didn't know who Chichin Chong was. Uh -huh. I had no idea. Really? No. Oh, wow. wow. <laughs> had no knowledge. And you, my manager at the time, the bad guy, that he wanted me to do this movie because, of course, he can pocket 75% of my uh, earnings. Right? How on earth does he get 75%? 75 I don't want to go. <laughs> All right. That's, that's another episode. That's crazy. The 75% episode. Yeah. Uh, but anyway... Um, Cheech and Chong had a problem. They had a vision to hire a bunch of people with disabilities on their film. And so they interviewed a lot of actors with disabilities, which was heaven for us. It was work, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, but the insurance company had problems with some of us, primarily me. <laughs> the problem person. <laughs> the insurance company didn't like the fact that I walked the way I did mm -hmm. because it could be a potential. You know, that maybe it was the same woman that lived down the street in Fullerton. Right? Oh, gee. <laughs> exactly. I was just yeah. thinking about it. Listen, her. check out episode one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but. <laughs> but but seriously, they were afraid that I would be a liability to the film. I mean, this is a Cheech and Chong film, and they're worried about me tripping. 
They're doing their own tripping. Some big trips, man. (laughs) Some intercontinental tripping. Yeah. I I mean, Dr. Timothy Leary was in the movie too, and he tripped also. (laughs) Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Oh, my God. I had to sign a contract that I agreed that I would not walk anywhere when I was called to work. I wasn't allowed to go from A to B. I had to be transported by electric cart even to go to the restroom because they were so afraid of me tripping. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I was living in Hermosa Beach at the time, which is quite a drive. Mm-hmm. And this was filmed in Hollywood. So it was about a 45-minute drive. And I was exhausted, like I am today. (laughs) (laughs) And I had performed the night before. I was so tired. And I had to get up at 3 to be there at 4 a.m. call in Hollywood. So I get there at probably 10 or 8 to 4. And I'm starting to climb up the hill from the parking lot. Production assistant, hey, Jewel, stop. In the name of love. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, stop. You cannot walk anywhere. Oh, come on. I have a 4M call. Just let me get up there and punch my card in. Nope. Now we'll get in trouble. So he's calling everybody with an electric card. Hey, do you got an electric card for Jewel? No, darn it. So this truck comes around the corner and he hails him down. He said, hey, are you going up the hill, man? <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> well, can you give Jewel a lift, man? Yeah, just put her on the back of the truck and tell her not to let go. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> So he put me on the back of the truck and I was holding on, but he took off so fast that I had involuntary movement and let go. And I fell off the truck. Oh, my God. And I, I think I broke two fingers. My thumb was sprained. My wrist was, I don't know what it was, but the ER put a cast halfway up my arm so that, you know, it would stay there. With CP, you have to really overdo it. So I get back to the set at 12 noon now. I was in the ER all morning. And I'm sitting at the lunch table. And Tommy Chong comes and sits right across from me. And he says, and I I said to him, hey, Tommy, can you please cut my meat? I can't do it today. And Tommy said, oh, fuck. Man. If they had only let you walk, yeah, this would have never happened. And he he didn't I didn't realize that what he was basically telling me was that you're out of the film. And I didn't take it that way, but that's what happened. Mm. I wasn't oh. asked to come back because they couldn't match the previous footage with my hand in a cast. Oh. So they had to cut all the previous scenes that I did. And I had some great scenes. I was in a padded cell. (laughs) (laughs) I was in a padded cell wearing an apron and a little white cap 
and my little pad of paper and pencil going round and round in circles in the padded cell asking people what they wanted for dinner. (laughs) (laughs) And then I had a scene where I was in the padded cell with Marion Cheech and Timothy Leary comes in and he gives Marion a tab of acid and he did. I don't want one, so I passed on it. And the next scene is Marin's on an acid trip at the comedy store, watching me do stand up comedy. <laughs> <laughs> what a trip! <laughs> what a trip! Oh, funny. All that got cut out. Oh. It was never in the movie. I just oh. got film credit. Oh, that's too bad. No, it really wasn't because. I did Cheech and Chong in 79 and it didn't come out in the theaters until 81. I got Facts of Life after the Cheech and Chong. So had the executive producers known that I had Cheech and Chong under my belt and I was going to come out in R-rated film, yeah. I wouldn't we have been able it. to do Facts of Life. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Bye-bye. Yeah. Blessing in disguise. A blessing yeah. in disguise again. Yep. I yep. told you. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what about, what about our buddy, Burt Reynolds? Oh, yeah. Um, this came a couple of days later after I fell off the truck. <laughs> <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> <laughs> And I love how you say an involuntary movement. Uh, no, I I had an audition for Burt Reynolds. He was casting a play in his theater in Jupiter, Florida. And he wanted to see every actor with a disability because he was, he was absolutely pro hiring people with disabilities in employment. He was so cool. So Every actor with a disability, I mean, you're talking about probably 40, 50, 60 of us are sitting there waiting to go on stage and audition. Wow. So it's finally my turn. And I wasn't wearing my hearing aids. Couldn't hear a damn thing. And so I have the first line of the script. Partner has another line. And Bert Reynolds says, action. I never heard it. And I have the first line. So I'm standing there tapping my feet. (laughs) Oh, I smile at my team partner. (laughs) I look at Bert Reynolds, smile. The, The room is silent. And finally, after about four minutes, I turned to Bert Reynolds and I said, what the hell are you waiting for? (laughs) 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 Waiting for it, come on. Let's get going. (laughs) The heart. That's funny. And I didn't get a part in this play, but he did mention me in the end. You know, he said, you know, you were all wonderful. Don't 
you know, sometimes actors have a lot of rejections before. And I just want to bring some back to the awareness of Jerry Jewell. Now, there's someone, Jerry, don't ever give up because everybody was hanging on the seat of their chairs waiting for you to do something really <laughs> <laughs> You're good at what you do. And I, <laughs> and I have to tell you, I'll never forget you. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That is funny. Okay, so we got we got Cheech and Chong, we got uh, Burt Reynolds, and then and, Facts Alive, and the Facts, facts Alive. So, so Norman Lear saw you uh, uh, the second annual Media Access Awards. Okay, and then cast me in Facts a couple months later, maybe three at the most. Tell us the moment where you found out what 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 happened. Well, of course, it's my manager who. Got 75 in my Unbelievable. Yeah. Said, you know, you got facts of life. You're going you're gonna to be a star. You're going to be blah, 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 blah. So it, it, they called the first episode Cousin Jerry. And I had mixed feelings about that. Because I want, you know, ironically, I know this is going to sound stupid. But ironically, I wanted to go into Hollywood and be famous so that people wouldn't ever mention Sarah Parley again. So that I could be all these different characters without CP. And it wasn't that journey at all. It was completely the opposite. Mm. Um... Where was I going with this? Well, you you were talking about when you first found out and the first episode was named Jerry. Yeah, the, it, I wanted a name distance from me. I wanted to play a role. Mm -hmm. I want to be a stand-up comic. I'm a stand-up comic in real life. I want to be a role. Mm -hmm. But they were so in awe of me as a talent, as a person with what I did, they wanted to incorporate. So it took me a while to appreciate the blessing of that because yeah. I was young. So what I'm kind of hearing you say, Jerry, is you wanted to be a TV star. You were a TV star, but you wanted it to be, have nothing to do with CP. Yeah. Nothing to do with CP. And yet that's what made you, or I don't want to say that. That's wrong. No, I, you I, can say it. Well, no, I, but I'm made saying that's career. not what's made you a star. Your talent is what made you a star, but, but your disability was front and center. Well, you know, I've been interviewed by a lot of talk shows over the years, and they they always ask me, you know, how I handle, you know, cerebral palsy so well. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I handle it because I have to. I said, mm -hmm. if if I had a choice and I could put cerebral palsy in my back pocket, where nobody else could know I have it. Mm -hmm. You don't think I'd take advantage of that? Of course I would. Oh, yeah. Um, I'd only let people see it when I'm in a disabled parking space. Because <laughs> <laughs> so you get front and center at Walmart. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. No, I'm kidding. Well, no, I'm not. 
<laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and just so, I mean, I, I, I always assume everybody knows this, but to be clear, you're the first person in history, the history of the world to land a network television show with, uh, a, with a visible disability. With a visible yeah. disability. Yeah. I mean, there were actors upon actors upon actors who had invisible disabilities mm-hmm. that we never knew of. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, but someone like me right out in the open was brand new. And that's something interesting because there was some disappointment with Facts of Life and me, not me, but from the network and the producers, because they tried to get me an Emmy every single episode I did practically. And they could never get Emmy consideration, even though they spent a lot of money to put ads in the trade with my picture all over the place. And I believe that Norman Leo was right. You see, if they had made an episode of Fact of Life where it was very dramatic and people were crying, I would have gotten any consideration. But because it was comedy, they didn't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It was like, yeah, but... <laughs> so... I was way before my time, but it was an amazing thing to have happened. I wouldn't have traded it for the world. Um, I remember when I was in Washington, D.C., and this was in the 80s, and I had left my hotel to go buy some bottled water somewhere, and these kids were following me, and I got scared. Because kids that followed me when I was a kid were Mm -hmm. making fun of me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, no, not this. So I picked up my pace. They picked up their pace. Mm -hmm. I started running. They started running. And I got to the light totally out of breath. And it said, don't walk. So I had to stand there. And the one kid is breathing really hard. And he goes, why did you run away from us? Aren't you cousin Jerry from Facts of Life? Oh. And I said, Yeah, we just want your autograph. We love you. Oh, man. And that blew me away. Little kids wanting my autograph. And then the next thing I was asked to do was Sesame Street. Mm. Oh. Did you ever see my episode of Sesame Street? I don't think so. <laughs> when I was on Facts of Life, I think I was like four when that went off the air. <laughs> well, that's perfect Sesame Street. Right. <laughs> when when I was on Facts of Life, I was asked to do Sesame Street. This was 1984. And because I was a nightclub comet, they couldn't have that on Sesame Street. You know, so they said, do you have any other skills that kids would like? And I said, yeah, I can roller skate. And you know, the minute that left my lips, I thought, wow, Mm -hmm. not only do I have cerebral palsy, I have mental health issues. It's like, what am I thinking getting on roller skates? What am I thinking? And so they flew me to New York to film Sesame Street. And Carol, um, Carol Spinney, the puppeteer, mm-hmm. 
he was so excited because he saw me on Facts of Life and he was so thrilled to work with me. He was the puppeteer in Tide Big Bird. And he was excited that I said roller skate because that's what he had trained himself to do in the Big Bird costume. Oh. So he said, oh, my God, Big Bird can skate with Jerry. Oh, the kids are going to love this. Uh-oh. Well, when I went to New York, we had a run-through, but Pops forgot the skates. So I just walked to my marks on stage and said my line and walked with Bird as he skated. The day of filming was the next day, and they remembered the skates. And the PA said, go out, go out, that's your cue. You know your mark, you're the, you're the blue mark on the stop at the blue. Well... I came from behind those curtains going so fast. I mean, really fast. And the first thing I noticed was, wow, what a short stage. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. And I had forgotten that I never learned how to use those rubber tips as properly. So I thought, oh, and I'm going there. This was a matter of seconds thinking. It's like your whole life flash in front of you. I I knew that either I was going to hit these parents and their four-year-old, which could be traumatic for them, or I'm going to hit the camera, which was going to be expensive, or I could hit Big Bird. In my mind, Big Bird was the safest because he was soft, had a lot of feathers. <laughs> well, I ended up hitting him so hard that his head fell off. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and the and these poor <laughs> these poor four year olds were so traumatized. Oh my god! Oh my god! <laughs> That's okay. We'll have them on our show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll right. process the trauma. <laughs> <laughs> that is classic. Oh my god! Well, oh. Carol, Carol. <laughs> I bumped into Carol Spenny years later and he told he he told me some inside info that I didn't know. He said I had to detach my head because if I didn't, you would have killed me. If I would have fallen completely over in costume, I would have been paralyzed or dead. Oh my god. So I let go of the head so that I could save my life. But Granted, you are the only person ever that beheaded Big Bird. Bird. (laughs) What a distinction. That's better than an Emmy. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. How funny. (laughs) Deadwood is an incredible thing to have happened. And, you know, your show is based on overcoming trauma. And... I was in a marriage that was failing. I was living separately from my husband. Um, I was addicted to painkillers because I was in a lot of neck pain from CP moving my head all over the place. Um, I was barely surviving. Um, And during this time, this was 19... 99. Um, I had gone to Europe. I was working on a film. 
and not in it, but contributing to the film. And even the producers, and I, I, I loved him. Oh my God. He knew that I was in trouble. Um, he, he saw how skinny I was and he knew that I was addicted to painkillers. And I honestly felt that I wasn't going to live much longer. Mm. And, but my last hurrah was to go to Europe. I had never been there. So I thought, okay, I'll go. And the irony of that is even if it, had been picked up in a film and they would have hired me full time, I couldn't have done it. I was too sick. And they knew that. Um, so I, I was at death's door and one night I was so depressed, so sick, so weak, I called one of my high school teachers from special ed at Troy High School. I called Lane Moss and I was crying. Mm. And I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't be a role model to millions of people. I can't, I can't even pay my rent. I can't even do marriage right. I can't do my life right. I can't. And he said to me, you know, someone who's known me since I was 15, he said, Jerry, he said, first of all, you need to stop taking drugs. I said, I don't know how. I'm in too much pain. I can't. How will I live? I don't know, but you have to. You have to do it or you will die. Is that what you want? No. And I stood up and I was on so many drugs that night that I lost my balance and flipped over backwards, ironically, over a pair of brand new roller skates that I bought in Europe. <laughs> and I tripped over the box of skates, which was symbolic. Because the reason I bought the skates in the first place wasn't because I intended to skate anywhere. It was to put that visual in my head of when I used to be able to do anything that anybody said I couldn't. Mm -hmm. That's what it was about. And what did I do? I tripped over my own vision. Right. And I landed on my head and crushed my neck. My neck is, has two titanium plates six titanium screws. Um, I'm lucky to even still be walking. Mm -hmm. And so I thought my career ended then. I mean, my marriage was ending. I was living with my sister in Laguna Beach. I didn't have any money, nothing. I had to go to rehab and drug rehab then physical rehab for the broken neck. And I mean, it was just, I, I didn't know how, to, how I was going to survive all that. But I kept going. Like I said earlier, I'm a survivor. And it was discovered 
that if you put high doses of um, Botox in your neck, that I could deal with the involuntary movement from CP to titanium neck. I mean, if you can imagine without Botox, it's unbelievable. So they started injecting Botox, but I had to drive all the way from the Laguna Beach to LA, Santa Monica to get it. So it was forcing me, come on, Jerry, you have to go do this. You can't depend on everybody else to do everything for you. Mm -hmm. And this one particular day, I was in so much pain. My pain level was through the roof. I couldn't even move my arms and I couldn't button any jeans. So I went to the drugstore with pajama bottoms on because I could just pull them up. And I thought, nobody's going to recognize me early in the morning. No big deal. And I'm standing in line to pick up the Botox to deliver to the neuro doctor to inject in me. And this man turns around. He said, oh, my God, you're Jerry Jewell. And I really didn't want to admit I was who I was. <laughs> because I looked like total shit that morning. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I'm a huge fan of yours. I love you. I've watched you over the years. And I said, well, thank you, sir. He said, what are you doing with your life now? I haven't seen you on TV. I said, well, I'm doing Botox now. (laughs) 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 And he said, you want a television series? I said, look, I said, just because I'm in a pharmacy doesn't mean I'm on drugs. (laughs) 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 Don't you mess with my mind. He said, in case you don't recognize me, my my name is David Milch, the executive producer of NYPD Blue. He said, yep. He said, well, Mr. Milch, I mean, I'm flattered that you like my work, but let's get real. I would make a real shitty cop. (laughs) 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 And he said, no, no, I just signed a contract with HBO. I'm doing a new Western called Deadwood. You want to do a Western? And I looked up as far as my titanium neck would let me. And I said, God, you have a quirky sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) I'm standing here with cerebral palsy, a titanium neck, dependent on Botox. David Milch here wants me to ride a horse. I'm glad I didn't take that sip of water just now. (laughs) Oh my gosh. My sister Gloria was shocked. He all he I came home, I told her what happened, and she thought, Yeah. Right. Uh Don't take it to her. She was always protective. You didn't want me to get hurt. Yeah. But he was true to his word. Um, I was the one that was a shit because 
what was it? What was it that I said that my friends were upset about? Oh, <laughs> yeah. I, I said, well, I keep, see, when we were in the pharmacy, David wrote, David Mills wrote his phone number on a prescription pad for an antidepressant. And he told me to call him. And all my friends and Gloria, call him, call him. And my attitude was no. Because I, this is true, this is what I was thinking. I'm desperate. And if I call him too quickly, he'll know it. Mm. So I want it to be a call that, you know, in about a week or two. <laughs> so I called him and he said, I don't want it, but he's called, yeah, well, I've been really, really busy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Getting Botox? <laughs> yeah, real busy. <laughs> he said, you got the series. You, you, I just came out of a meeting. I'm in New York and you're going to be on HBO's Deadwood. So he was true to his word. And as my sister pointed out, Gloria, many times, she said, you've never waited around or done the usual chain of events to get success. You go right to Norman Lear. You go right to David Milch. That's so bizarre because my agent could have made 100 calls and couldn't get a meeting with David Milch. And all I have to do is go into a pharmacy and buy Botox. <laughs> <laughs> and then he's right there. <laughs> so oh. to this day, I hang out in pharmacies. <laughs> I think, you know what? I think that's a good idea. <laughs> that's awesome. That is funny. Oh, my gosh. Well, and so that's where I think the younger crowd knows you from is the HBO thing. Mm -hmm. You know, oh, Facts yeah. of Life was, what What year was that? What were your I was on Facts from 80 through 84. And, okay. and the iconic picture that uh, you're so famous for is that T-shirt. Yeah. Yeah. That said, I'll let you say it. Well, that T-shirt was my own T-shirt. Um, I... I used it in my comedy act. Well, what did the t-shirt say? Well, let's start with that. Well, the, this famous Jerry Jewel t-shirt is, I don't have cerebral palsy, I'm drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was the other way around. I'm no. not drunk, I have cerebral palsy. <laughs> no, it's the other way around. Oh, okay, all right. It's, it's playing a trick on you yeah. is what it's doing. The yeah. mind, yeah, that's funny. Okay. But my T-shirt, the one that I had made that I used in my comedy act for years before Fact of Life, here I've had cerebral palsy by that time for 22 years, 21 years, and I didn't know how to spell cerebral palsy. <laughs> <laughs> this is before word processing right yeah you couldn't ask siri yeah yeah <laughs> or word check i put an e after the s in palsy there's no e there and i thought you know this shirt costs 30 cents a letter i could have saved 30 cents <laughs> <laughs> i dropped the e <laughs> well <laughs> funny when i did facts of life 
um, Wardlow bought me two new T-shirts, the same one that I used in my comedy act. And when they showed it to me, I started laughing. <laughs> I said, what's so funny? I said, well, you know how to spell cerebral palsy, and you don't have it, and I have it. And don't know I just loved that show. A lot of good memories watching that show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, I wasn't a big, I still am not a big TV watcher, but I certainly knew about the show and yeah. I knew about Jerry. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it was groundbreaking. It was fun. Um, it was fun. It was cute. Yeah. And it, it, there were a lot of wonderful things that came out of Fact of Life. Some not so wonderful, but the thing that I want my life to carry is that, yeah, there's not so wonderful things that happen, but truthfully, um, you got to focus and appreciate the good things that happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. For, for sure. sure. So I know you spoke at the White House yes. a few times. Yes. Um, when was the first time? The first time was in 85. And that was President Reagan, right? Yes. And tell us about that. Well, it, it's interesting because Facts of Life didn't renew my contract. My manager was in prison. <laughs> oh, geez. <laughs> I had no money. I had zero money. I think I had $400 in the bank. And they wanted me to do stand-up comedy for a special event that Nancy Reagan was a part of, and it was Inspire 85, and it was celebrating disability in the United States. And what a lot of the politicians didn't know was that I had a good friend on that committee and she was calling me every night, telling me the conversations. And they went back and forth and back and forth. Yeah, we want Jerry Jewell back. We want Jerry Jewell back. And the problem was, was that um, a lot of politicians had problems with me. They said I was not a good role model, that I couldn't be trusted, that I was a loose cannon that um, I told blue material on network television. And the only time I ever did that, and even Dick Clark was shocked, because <laughs> it was a Dick Clark show. <laughs> I, I said, I, he hired me to do stand-up comedy on one of his shows. And the joke was, you know, I went out with a very prominent executive producer last week, but I really wanted to impress him. So I told him that I didn't really have cerebral palsy, that I was just having a continuous orgasm. (laughs) The only problem is they never know when I'm coming or going. And this, this followed me everywhere to the White House. And so my friend calls me and she said, they're going to compromise. They're going to give you two minutes of comedy instead of 10 minutes of comedy. I said, that's the compromise? 
to go from 10 minutes to two minutes. Well, Jerry, just listen. Nobody wanted you here because of that questionable orgasm joke. Oh, brother. You know, the one thing that I wish that I could do, but cerebral palsy doesn't allow me, I've always wanted to roll my eyes. But I can't do that because mm-hmm. it's fine motor movement. Mm-hmm. So I roll my eyes in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the orgasm jokes. <laughs> and she said, you'll never guess who came to your defense. I said, who? Nancy Reagan herself. You're kidding. Yes, and she was the one who suggested two minutes instead of ten. I'm telling you, Jerry, it was the only way it was going to happen. She said that regardless of the fact that you don't always choose appropriate material (laughs) and that you um, possibly are not a good role model because of it, she is the highest visible person with a disability in the entertainment field right now. We have to have. So let's give her ten, two minutes, and that won't give her enough time to even reach the orgasm. Okay. Well, that's politics and negotiation for you. Oh my god! Sorry. All right. So I want to get to the um, actual night at the White House. So um, tell us about the actual event at the White House. The first time. They fly you in the day before. Okay. And they fly you to production office. And then you have to pass a CIA inspection because they always do a background check. Okay. So if anybody that speaks at the White House, that's just Mm -hmm. common. So um, I get to production and the executive producer said, okay, what jokes are you going to tell the White House tomorrow? I said, I'm not telling any jokes. And he said, is that supposed to be funny? (laughs) I said, not particularly. Um, I'm just not going to do that. And he said, then why did we fly you all the way from L.A. to to Washington, D.C.? What game are you playing, Jewel? And I said, oh, no, no, I'm not playing a game. I said, "You, the White House cut my time from 10 minutes to 2 minutes because of an orgasm joke. (laughs) And I feel censored. And... I do not want to do stand-up comedy on those conditions, but I do want to tell some politicians what I really feel about sense of humor. (laughs) And he was like, oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And he said, okay, there's a wood processor in my office. I'll tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. You go in there and you type what you want to tell people at the White House tomorrow. But when I, all I know is that you're doing stand-up comedy. And what's going to go in the teleprompter are the jokes that you're going to give me. Because you're going to take full responsibility for making this jump. I know nothing about it. He actually gave me a gift. 
Um, and if I don't like what you're going to say, if I think that you're going to harm yourself or harm, you know, people's attitudes at the White House, I'm going to say no. You mm-hmm. do stand up or we fly you home. Is that a fair deal? Yeah, it's fair. So I went and I typed my speech. I came out, I'm done. Okay, read it. So I read it to him and everybody in the office and there wasn't a dry eye. Mm-hmm. And he said, you, you want to say that tomorrow? And I said, yes, I do, because it's the truth. Remember what I said? What's going to be in the teleprompter? You go in there and you type a bogus comedy act right now. Okay. And I said, but, but how will I know my lines to what I really want to say? That's not my problem, is it? So then I thought, oh, he's going to force me to use the teleprompter. So I said, do you have the next card? <laughs> <laughs> So I went back to my hotel and handwritten my whole speech on about six index cards. And I entered the White House with it under my blouse. And the first person that greeted me was Nancy Reagan. I was so nervous. I was so nervous I didn't know my own CP strength. And she has tiny She's tiny. And when I shook her hand, I could feel her knuckles go. Oh, I crunched her knuckles. And she wasn't smiling in pleasure. (laughs) She was smiling in intense pain. Oh. (laughs) And so I went in front of the audience. It was my turn to go up. And I pulled the end of the cards up under my shirt. Put them on the... uh, what do you call that? Podium? Yeah, I put him on the podium and I could see everybody whispering to one another, oh, what is she going to do? What is she doing? <laughs> and I, I started my speech. I, and you can probably find it on YouTube. It's probably up there by now. I have a copy of it somewhere. But I ended up starting it with, you know, I thought about doing stand-up comedy today. But then I thought, oh, my God, it's just two minutes. (laughs) I said, I can't do really good stand-up comedy in just two minutes. So that's not fair to you, and that's not fair to me. So I'd like to share a little bit about my philosophy on life. (laughs) And all I was telling them was that how... Everybody has a sense of humor and that people laugh in different ways. And what might be offensive or not funny to one person may have the opposite effect with somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I thank God I live in the United States where I have freedom of speech. I basically went in the back door and got him, you know. Mm-hmm. But, and, and this is something that's interesting that came out of that. Um, one of the Kennedys came up to me afterward, wanted me to sign a release form. He said, oh, my God, that was brilliant. And I said, well, thank you. Would you mind performing at the Kennedy Center next month? Shut up. Mm. Yes. 
Wow. And they were honoring Ted Kennedy Jr. And they wanted me to be the stand-up comedian that night. My God. I mean, Reagan was there. Everybody that was everybody was there. Now, you're going to love this. I'm backstage. Secret service is everywhere because Reagan's there. Mm -hmm. And... Every 10 minutes, and I'm not exaggerating, every 10 minutes, a Secret Service person would come up to me and say, uh, Miss Jewel, you're not to say the orgasm joke. <laughs> <laughs> again and again and again. And I was like, why can't they treat me like everybody else? You know? Mm-hmm. Just tell me not to use the joke. I won't use it. You don't have to remind me every 10 minutes. It's the double standard of disability. Mm -hmm. I'm a child. Mm -hmm. We have to keep reminding her. Mm -hmm. You know, I wasn't going to do it. I would have never done something that stupid. So I opened my mouth to tell comedy. Nothing came out. I lost my voice. And... And I was mortified. And I ran off stage and everybody politely applauded. I went in the green room. I couldn't go back to my table up front. I was too embarrassed. So I went to the green room crying because I thought, oh, I just humiliated myself. Why? Where was my voice? And Ted Kennedy Jr., who was honored that night, came backstage. And he came into the green room and he sat down next to me and he said, You know, Jewel, I've been aware of you for a long time. And I've never known you to be speechless. And I said, but I made a fool out of myself. And he put his arm around me and he said, Jay, don't worry about it. They don't know anything about you. They just think, oh, how cute. (laughs) I said, I guess you're right. <laughs> I mean, he gave me more support, and they were honoring him. Oh, that's, that's sweet. That's a class act. Yeah, that is a class act. Well, I mean, I while we're on the topic of fr- stage fright, because that's something people have, uh, whether it be at the Kennedy Center in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, was that the only time you had that issue, or I know you mentioned you bombed at the yeah, comedy I club once. Bombed several times. All good comedians do. Truthfully. So if you're gonna if you're gonna achieve greatness, yeah, you're, you 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 know having having the occasional bomb is just it's just par for the course, right? Yeah, you, yeah. Comes I mean, with if the you territory. can't handle it, get yeah. out of the business. Yeah. yeah, and that's an important life lesson. Yeah. I think. Yeah, who said that to you? Pardon, Ted who, Kennedy Jr. No, there was no, somebody. He didn't say that. No, no there was. Oh, no. 
Oh, from the improv. Yeah. yeah. It was the one who yeah. said, yeah, like if you can't can. handle it, get out of the yeah, business. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So, well, going back to the White House, though, you must have made a good impression because Reagan and Nancy Reagan and Ronald Reagan invited you back. Yeah. And nice. Ted Kennedy walked me to my table, Ted Kennedy Jr. Oh. You know, to get me out there safely to get over the embarrassment. How sweet. And I, I love him. He's such a sweetheart. Mm. He's. He's got class. Yeah. And um, the only thing I I was bummed about was I didn't get to meet the president because I was hobnobbing with Ted Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> For hobnobbing with the Kennedy. That's a big one, too. Did you did you meet Reagan the second time you went to the White House? No, I never went back the second time to the Reagan Oh, I thought you did two times at Reagan and two times at Obama. Oh, two times with Obama. Obama. Yeah. Okay. There's just so many presidents. <laughs> sort it all out. Okay. So that was the one time with Reagan. Yeah. And then, and then you went twice with Obama. Well, yeah. tell us about that. Oh, what was President Obama, the president. Yeah, I know. Come back. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the White House. <laughs> you remember him now? <laughs> they were doing the disability power ball at the President's Club the night before of the inauguration. Wow. And I think over 2,000 people with disabilities showed up. Oh, that's cool. And I was the stand-up comic. Mm -hmm. So I got to do that right before the inauguration. It was amazing. It was surreal. Mm -hmm. uh, wow. And I did well. And I met a lot of fascinating uh, politicians. And then I was asked to the White House again um, to be there with the Push Girls. Have you ever heard of the Push Girls? What are Push Girls? No. Mm -mm. Okay. They were a group of women who were wheelchair users and they had developed a, a real life series called Push Girls Following Their Lives for Sundance Channel. And they were invited to the White House and they wanted me there too, considering I opened the door. I was the first one. And we all knew each other. That's the thing. The disabled community, mm -hmm. uh, people in the arts who are disabled, we all know each other. Because yeah. we're at the same auditions. <laughs> yeah. You walk out into the parking lot together. <laughs> Get a bagel. Yeah, so... Uh, yeah, it, it was an amazing event. There was a panel and it was exciting. And then I was asked again to, by the Obama White House because it was the first time they had gotten LGBTQ and disability together. Oh, wow. That was like, wow. I mean, but then to pull off that, that was amazing because there's a huge population. Huge in the disabled community that's gay. That's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so they were excited about that. And I was one of the keynote speakers at that event. Well, we Very haven't gotten cool. into that yet. I mean, let's talk about you coming out and, and your, your experience with 
Yeah, well, yeah, well, the reason that came about was because of my book, I'm Walking as Straight yeah. as I Can. Yeah. And um, this book was a, a dream come true for me. <laughs> I love, 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 love that picture. Get this book. I got it. Well, it's an audible. Times. It's an audible too. Oh, good. Because that's more my style. Okay. But I, I read it, but I read it a while ago. And as you can tell, my memory sucks, but, um, it does. and I, <laughs> <laughs> I just take you out to, I just take you out to dinner and I get another audible version or chapter. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my audible. Um, I left my other copy up in park city. So I had to get it on Amazon again the other day. So, um, We'll talk about, I mean, what, what do you want to share about, you know, coming out and, and all of that well, in your life? Um, dead, I got cast on Deadwood, obviously, in the pharmacy. And, in the pharmacy. And that was a three-year run. And I wasn't a regular, I was a reoccurring. So, you know, you, you don't have tons of money to put away and you need to work. And I survived on whatever I saved at that time and work just ended, you know, dead would happen. And then my career went dead <laughs> and I couldn't get work at all. So I lost the apartment because I couldn't afford to pay the rent. And I had to return my lease on my car because I had no money to um, keep it. So I had no car. And I had about $200 in the bank. And that very same week that all that happened, I got a contract for this book. The exact same week. I lost everything, but got a book contract. But it wasn't the 80s, you know. There was no big money. I got paid probably 1500 at the end of the writing, which was a year and a half. So I still had no money. And my little sister, Gloria, saved my ass again. <laughs> she, um, she was having her house renovated in Laguna Beach. So she was living with her fiancé at the time at his home. And she put all my things in storage except my computer and my desk and bought me um, a twin bed and let me keep Norma Jean, my kitty. Aww. And we moved, Norma Jean and I moved into Gloria's empty house in Laguna. And I say empty, it was empty. The only thing that was in there was a biking refrigerator. And in the morning at 6.30, the working crew would be there sawing and hammering. But you know what? She took every stress out of my life. I didn't have to worry about it. She bought me a used Mini Cooper. She gave me a credit card to buy food. And she let me live in her house rent-free. And so for 10 hours a day, I wrote that book religiously. I I wanted to do it. That was my dream. And yeah. I did it. Um, because I felt at that time 
you know, not getting any work in Hollywood. What do I have, what do I have to lose? I'm going to write the truth about my life. I'm, I'm tired of projecting the fantasy, you know. Um, it's, it's been a very difficult life. But there's a lot of wonderful things, too, and I want to make it balanced. I want people mm-hmm. to relate. So Gloria gave me that gift to be able to finish that book. Mm. Yeah. And, and one of the things that uh, one of the things you said, Jerry, years ago, and I still remember it today is and that is here you are easily the most well-known, famous disabled person on the planet. And you're having a hard time paying rent. And the point is, is that that really hit me because, uh, you know, it, it, it makes me feel a lot of empathy for those disabled folks who don't have a sister named Gloria yeah. and don't have oh, the advantages. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it's, it's a pretty, go? it's a pretty stark sobering thought that here you are struggling. Imagine mm-hmm. the struggles of millions across the planet. Where do they go? Yeah. And, and, and it's, um, you know, we're, we're trying our best on this show to really share life skills to to keep going and hopefully well, eventually thrive. Well, again, I had nothing. I had no employment. I had no money. I had, didn't have a place to live that I could mm-hmm. call my own. My things were in storage. And yet, I was given this diamond, the gift of telling my story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah. That's a big I, gift. I mean, I am so blessed. I, I, I never feel sorry for myself. That's not an issue. Yeah, it's good. I, you know, <laughs> I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but... It hasn't stopped you before. Yeah, I think we've crossed that line. (laughs) (laughs) No. It was in 86. Yeah, it was in 86. And I hadn't worked since 1984. And I did the white half and I still couldn't get a job. I had no money. And I flew to New York and... Um, had I don't know what I was looking for, chasing some dream. And I was staying with some friends of mine in Long Island, and I was very depressed, so depressed. I bought a book called Jesus and Forgiveness, and it was in the middle of August, hot as hell. <laughs> And I decide to take a train to New York City. I'm wearing shorts, a T-shirt. I have $20 in my shoe and a pocket full of quarters for Ms. Pac-Man. Ms. Pac-Man. And, and my book called Jesus and Forgiveness. Because inside that book was my friend's address so I could get home again. <laughs> <laughs> So I take the train to Town Square, 
you know, Times Square. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. And I get off. And I've been to New York a million times. I did comedy there for years. Mm -hmm. I thought I knew New York in the back of my hand. But I was so depressed. Mm. I was so depressed. I wasn't paying attention to time. All I was doing was shoving quarters into Ms. Pac-Man. And then I realized, oh, my God, it's getting late. I got to get back to Long Island. And this is where being hearing impaired can be very, make you very vulnerable. I go in to get my ticket and I screwed up. I, I couldn't figure out what train to get on. And I am hearing impaired, obviously, I wear hearing aids. It's not something you always know about me because it's kind of invisible, not like CP. But if I say I'm hearing impaired to someone, they don't slow down or speak up. They say the same thing the way they said it the first time. <laughs> but if I say I'm deaf, oh. <laughs> oh, different language. Yes. So I upped it to deafness because I was scared. I thought, how am I going to get... So I went up to this man with a tie and a nice shirt. I figured he was safe. I said, hi, I'm Daph. I need to go to Summit, New Jersey. How do I do this? <laughs> <laughs> and he points to the tracks, you know, above uh -huh. and shows me. And he said, it's going to stop five times. Don't get off. Stay on. And I must have screwed up on this one direction because I got off thinking I was in Summit. And I walked out, and it didn't look like Summit. It was Hoboken. Oh, my gosh. So I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the next train out of Hoboken to Summit wasn't until two hours later. Oh, so I was alone in Hoboken in a, in a train station on a Saturday night, if you can imagine. Mm -hmm. Scary. Okay. We're in shorts, mm -hmm. my driver's license and 20 bucks in my shoe, and a pocket full of quarters. <laughs> For Miss Pac-Man. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. And my book, Jesus and Forgiveness, under my arm. And I get outside and, the, and I ask to get a cab to, to this address and I open up my book. Can you take me there? And he starts laughing. He said, do you have $300? $300? Well, you want to go to Summit? Yeah, that's where I am. Hey, lady, you're in Hoboken. Hoboken? <laughs> I said, well, how do I get to Summit? And he explained to me that there was another train leaving in a couple hours. So just, he showed me the train on the program. This is the train you want. And then he did the same thing with the other guy. It's going to stop. Da, 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 da. <laughs> and it's getting late. Now it's like 1130 at night. And I see this railroad worker walking around. I'm, I'm scared. I think, well, if I cling to him... Nobody can hurt me. So I went up to him and I said, sir, 
um, I need to go to Summit. Can you please show me the train right now where it is so I can get on it before it moves? You want to get on it before it moves? I said, yeah. I said, I'm alone. And, and I could get hurt out here. And if you lock me in a train, nobody can touch me. I said, oh, okay. So he shows me to the train. He opens the door. I thank him. I sit there, and it's, I'm pouring sweat. If it's 120 outside, it's 300 on the train. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, God, I have to do this, because if I get off, I'm going to get killed or raped or whatever. And I'm sitting there thinking, how did I get in this situation? And then the door opens, and it's him. And he comes back in, and I think he's going to tell me the train is going to start. People are going to start loading. No, he sat down next to me on my seat and put his hands in my underwear, going back and forth. And I thought, here I am again. Why does this always happen to me? And I turned away from him because it was too ugly and painful to watch. And I knew not to scream because I figured that if I screamed, he could kill me. So I watched him through the reflection of his doing it in the window. And in that reflection, I saw the cover of my book, Jesus and Forgiveness. And I turned around, I looked at him directly in the eye. And I said, you know, Jesus did not like what you're doing to me right now. You would think (laughs) this guy had terror in his eyes. He got so scared, he pulled his arms out of my pants. He gets on his hands and knees. He goes, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. I, I didn't mean it. Please don't tell anybody. I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And I said, Jesus already has forgiven you. Mm. Mm -hmm. I don't have to. Wow. 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 And thank God for that book. Well, (laughs) what? What ended up happening was the train eventually started and I must have gone through six cars because I wanted to be right up front with the driver of the train. I was terrified at that point. Understandable. And and then I upped the deafness even more. I'm deaf. Trying to get out the summit. (laughs) (laughs) And they... They were so kind, I didn't tell on that guy again. My, my lips were sealed. And I um, got to Summit at a train station. No people except one person it was scaring the hell out of me. And I kept calling the cab service. Nobody would come. I still had $20 in my pocket, in my shoe, I mean. And so I called the police department. And I said, I'm at the summit 
train station, I need you to come and get me. We're not a cab service, ma'am. I said, yeah, I know. I said, I've called you cab service many times. I have cerebral palsy and I'm a woman and I'm alone and the, and cerebral palsy looks like I'm on drugs and there's a guy in here that's looking for drugs. So if you don't get here real soon, you're going to have another problem. On your Mm -hmm. And they sent two squad cards, one for me and one for him. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. There you go. And they drove me home. Wow. But again, again, I, I didn't panic. That's the thing. I don't panic. Yeah, you don't. It's like, okay, what do I have to do now? Uh-huh. You know, it's survival skills. Like That's I said. what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. You've had to survive from di- before you were even born. You had to survive. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me just ask a question because, I mean, we're here to talk about you and your story, Jerry. But, um, you know, Tanya obviously has been through some trauma. Absolutely. With uh, d- involving domestic violence, mm-hmm. you've you've shared some really dark experiences mm-hmm. with sexual abuse, which uh, you know my head wants to explode. Mm-hmm. And what's what's happened? I, I, I guess I'm asking the question: with today's knowledge, would you know? I, I think I know your answer, Tanya. You, you know, you wish there had been an open conversation a lot earlier mm-hmm. that this stuff had been talked about in an open way. I, I and I, I never want to ever um, come across as being judgmental of those who have been through abuse. But what advice would you give to young women today who ha- are facing these frightening individuals who are abusive? Would you um, call the police and report them today? Or how would you handle it today? Or what advice would you give to those who are facing this kind of uh, horrible treatment? God, it's such a hard question. It's each one is unique. Mm-hmm. What we might feel is correct for this person might not be correct for right. this person. Um, but to follow your truth, and if your truth says to hold it in for a while, hold it in for a while. Go with your gut, is what I say. Yeah. Um, that's, it hasn't happened to me. I mean, I'm 65 now, and I think I'm out of the clear of any kind of... <laughs> uh, what, what I mean by that is I haven't been in any abusive situations. Well, yeah. Yeah. I get what you're saying. I, I guess what I'm saying from a, from kind of a clinical point of view, when, when abuse is happening, there's fight, flight, or freeze. Mm-hmm. Those are really your three options. Yep. Um, you fight either then or later you freeze uh, or you run. Mm-hmm. And with your disability, you really that kind of eliminates well, one of them. The plane forget. Yeah, yeah. But you gotta you you got to uh, take you know you got to do whatever it takes to survive. Mm-hmm. I guess I guess what I'm saying there's no real right reason, 
a right answer to that question. It's a very difficult question, but, but I think we can all agree that hopefully society is getting to the point with the Me Too movement and other things Mm -hmm. that it is getting safer and safer to speak up at the appropriate time. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, my ex-boyfriend son assaulted me. I had to call San Clemente police like four times. So I did, I did the flight, the, the freeze and Mm -hmm. the other one. Fight, flight, and freeze. Yeah. I mean, I did it all within probably every day within like 10 yeah. minutes at yeah. a time. I, I so. guess what I just want to say to the listeners when, when these ugly Speak situations, up. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, fortunately I was taught by parents that said, you know, to re, you know, respect women, respect mm-hmm. everyone mm-hmm. basically. But, but there are individuals that don't have that philosophy yeah. But, but, speak, but I, up. you know, take advantage of the fact society is getting better yeah. and people are being held accountable. Right. Um, and, and always, you know, go for that, but always obviously do what will preserve your life. Exactly. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know what, we're, for the first time in history on this podcast, we're not going to have one thrive episode. We're going to have two, <laughs> we're going to take a break, <laughs> you know, and, and, and what, Kind of recap, we've we've covered a lot of territories, remarkable stories. And the thing is, we're not done. There's so many other experiences you've had, Jerry, that are just so phenomenal. We haven't even gotten to. And they're really essential that we that we document. So um, if that's okay with you, yeah. uh, let's take a break. And and but what we see is that we see the fantasy, you called it a fantasy. It's really mm-hmm. a fantasy a fantasy reality where you have been to the White House, you have been to the Kennedy Center. Although it didn't turn out ideally, uh, you have been on, you know, major TV and and we haven't even talked about what it's like to be on the set. And that, right. that sounds pretty exciting. Um, and we'll come back to that. Yeah. But thriving is not always peaches and cream, even in that stage, is it? No, it's not. It's complicated. It's messy. It's still painful. Yeah. It's still traumatic. You know, it's you go through all these events. Right. I mean, Jerry, you can attest to this where it's still still here doesn't go away. Yeah. It's still in your memory. Yeah. It's your life. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's take a break and uh, on here on post traumatic <laughs> What's the name of this podcast again? The new child. Yeah, well. <laughs> it, it is fascinating to talk to you, but we'll come back in a minute on uh, post traumatic thriving mm-hmm. where we talk about whether we're going to dive, survive or thrive. The choice is yours. Thanks for supporting our podcast. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe, and follow us on your favorite social media. For books, merchandise, or to donate, visit coreiq.com. Post-Traumatic Thriving is produced by CoreIQ, a nonprofit with a mission to teach the life skills we all need but are not taught in school. CoreIQ and the Post-Traumatic Thriving podcast are for informational purposes only and do not provide medical or mental health advice. Always consult with your licensed medical and mental health care providers.